If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there everybody and welcome to today's presentation on reactive and disinhibited engagement attachment disorders. I'm your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. In this presentation, we're going to define the criteria for the diagnosis of reactive attachment disorder and disinhibited social engagement disorder in the DSM-5-TR, as well as talk about what we currently know regarding treatment strategies. Let's start with reactive attachment disorder. That's the one that a lot of people are more familiar with. Reactive attachment disorder is characterized by pervasive, inhibited, withdrawn behavior toward caregivers as evidenced by rarely or minimally seeking or responding to comfort. Both of those have to be there. They have to rarely seek comfort and rarely respond to comfort. The second criteria is ongoing social and emotional problems as evidenced by two or the following. Minimal social and emotional responsiveness to others. So instead of uh, seeking uh, solace, seeking comfort from caregivers, this means just interacting with others in a uh, social and emotionally responsive way, including peers. Limited positive affect or episodes of unexplained anger, depression, or anxiety, even during non-threatening interactions with adult caregivers. Additionally, the child must have experienced inadequate care as evidenced by one of the following. Social neglect, including not having basic needs for safety, love, and stimulation met. Now I have basic needs bolded and italicized for a reason. What are basic needs for each individual child may vary. A child, for example, who is neuroatypical may have very different needs than a child who is neurotypical. And the parents may not understand the different needs, especially in the infant, before they're able to articulate what their needs are. Uh, so the social neglect may not always be the result of a uh, neglectful caregiver. It could be the result of an unaware caregiver about what the basic needs are. So we really want to explore this concept of basic needs when we're talking about um, diagnosis. Basic needs for love. Wow. 
some children are characterized by more high needs and others are easier going. And I don't really like those terms. But some children need more assistance with emotional regulation than others do. And caregivers may not be equipped. They may not know how to respond to that. So again, the child's basic needs for love and responsiveness may not be met. And the third one is stimulation. And again, we really want to look at the differences between children. What one child needs for stimulation may be way more than what another child needs. And what the quote average child needs, another term I don't like, for stimulation may be super overstimulating for someone who's neuroatypical or who has uh, undiagnosed ADHD. Uh, so we really want to be aware of those things. Anyhow, limited opportunities to develop secure attachments due to frequent changes of primary caregivers. Now, in people diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder, this is most often the care, uh, criteria that is met. They may meet all three, but a lot of times when we're looking at the prevalence of reactive attachment disorder, um, and when we get to differential diagnosis, you might start to understand why it is not as common as you might think, but it is very common, relatively speaking, in children that are involved in child welfare, children that are in the foster system. If they are frequently changing primary caregivers, going from uh, living with their biological caregivers to a foster home, to another foster home, to another foster home, back to their primary caregivers, and then start the cycle again. That can be very confusing and very unsettling for the child. And they may just kind of wall off and say, you know what? I can't. I can't trust you to be there. I can't trust you to meet my needs consistently because tomorrow it could be somebody else. So I am not going to connect with you. Or growing up in unusual environments with severely limited opportunities to form a selective attachments. The examples that the DSM-5-TR gave were in reference to large group homes, for example, where there's a high child to caregiver ratio. However, we also look at situations like very large families. Now, they're not the norm in the United States, but they can happen, uh, in which the ratio of child to caregiver is eight to one or more. <clears throat> and in that situation, it's important to recognize that there are many situations in large families in which the children get their needs met. So we don't want to assume that it's just as soon as the ratio changes in group homes. Why did I choose that number eight to one? Because in group homes, uh, most of the time, the ratio of child to caregiver is limited to, guess what, eight to one. So those are important things. Now, one of the things that's unique in group homes is that there really isn't a primary caregiver, so to speak. There's somebody on duty 24 hours a day. They may have a primary counselor, but that person doesn't really serve or fit the same role as a 
primary caregiver that you would think of in terms of a family. So we're really looking at an environment in which there's a high child to caregiver ratio and it is a um, non-traditional caregiver arrangement, so to speak. So remember, they only have to have one of these. Social neglect, uh, limited opportunities to develop secure attachments, or unusual environments with limited opportunities to form selective attachments. The diagnosis goes on that inadequate care is responsible for the disturbed behavior. So you have to see the inadequate care and then the behavior happening, not the behavior and then the parent just going, I don't know what to do. And then the care quality deteriorating, for example, or the behavior ex being exhibited and then the child being moved to a residential treatment facility. Uh, you want, it needs to be the opposite way. Inadequate care needs to have precipitated the behavior. The cr criteria is not met for autism spectrum disorders, and it will be important to differentially diagnose this because there are a lot of similarities between reactive attachment disorder and autism spectrum disorders. However, people with autism spectrum disorders have not experienced that neglectful environment, um, and they have had potentially opportunities to form meaningful connections, but that has just not been something they've been able to do. For reactive attachment disorder, symptoms must be present before the age of five. And the developmental age of the person must be at least nine months old. So if you have somebody who has uh, severe intellectual disabilities, even if they are chronologically six or seven, if their developmental age is not at least nine months old, then the criteria for reactive attachment disorder would not be fully met. I do want you to consider though, uh, when you look at the data, and I use that term extraordinarily loosely because there's very little data on the incidence and prevalence of reactive attachment disorder in the general population, whether you look at the DSM or you look in PubMed, uh, the studies that have been done have largely been done in residential treatment centers. Uh, so getting accurate estimates of the prevalence is a little bit more difficult. However, I still think that the rough estimate of less than 10% of children in child welfare will develop uh, reactive attachment disorder may be very uh, low. And this is not, this is my opinion here, but I want you to follow me. I want you to think about this. Children who are in child welfare may enter child welfare when they're five or six years old. And we may not know what happened before that period of time. We may not have a good indication of how long that abuse or neglect was going on. Um, we may, the symptoms, remember, we're talking about the symptoms. Uh, we may not know whether that child was exhibiting those uh, reactive attachment or avoidant symptoms prior to age five because we may not have a good medical history. The child may not have gone to the doctor or the child may um, 
have gone to the doctor but they just went to random clinics here and there and they don't have any real set medical records we can't count on the caregiver the, the biological caregiver to be a reliable historian uh, because they may be during the time that they had the child in their custody they may have been so overwhelmed with their mental illness or their addiction that they aren't able to actually give an accurate clear-headed report of what was going on so my estimation or my, my guess is that the amount of reactive attachment disorder in children is actually higher than what is showing in on the books so to speak that's just my thought and if you work in child welfare if you work with uh, foster kids I, I would encourage you to think about when when you're looking at your caseload how common are attachment problems now and I'm getting ahead of myself we will talk about this some later but it's important to recognize that even if something doesn't rise to the level of reactive attachment disorder or disinhibited social engagement disorder doesn't mean it's not a problem lack of ability to form secure attachments is going to have reciprocal problems for the child later in life so on the polar opposite end of the spectrum is disinhibited social engagement disorder the child frequently approaches and interacts with unfamiliar adults and evi as evidenced by two of the following lack of caution in interacting with unfamiliar adults now we want to be careful in applying this diagnostic criteria and I'll give you an example when my son was a toddler uh, my husband one of my husband's um, partners came over he was on in law enforcement and he was partnered with a uh, another detective and that detective came over and my son had heard about this person you know over the, over dinner and everything so she was familiar to him now they'd never actually met in person but when they did meet he ran over and gave her a big hug and she was like completely freaked out about that because she was like does he do this to everybody or um, so it is important to get the entire picture yes Sean had never met this person in in person before but he had heard so much about her and he knew her name so when she came in and we introduced them he felt like they knew each other so this to him was not an unfamiliar adult so we do want to be explore a little bit and but interacting with unfamiliar adults would be more like a child walking up to a complete stranger on the playground some adult stranger that they've never met before that they've never seen before it's not Tommy's mom that's been on the bench every week since you've started going to the uh, playground you know that person is a little bit more familiar to the child and it's Tommy's mom even though they've never met so we do want to watch how we apply that criteria and 
or and or the child is overly familiar uh uses overly familiar verbal or physical behavior that's not culturally or age appropriate so they may again hugs you know things that are overly familiar they may use terms that are overly familiar like calling somebody by their first name or addressing some uh, an adult in a much more familiar way than would be considered appropriate lack of checking in with their adult caregiver even in unfamiliar situations and you know think about children that you've known that have had reasonable attachment in unfamiliar situations they will often check back in just make sure that the caregiver is still there go to the playground and they're playing they may not actively come back over to you but a lot of times they will scan and periodically check to make sure that you're there um, and it's important to notice if children are just completely detached and oblivious to the caregiver uh, in unfamiliar situations and there's little hesitation at leaving with unfamiliar people so for example at the playground a child might walk up to a stranger or even somebody who they kind of sort of know and be like take me to the bathroom or the stranger may say hey I've got you know candy in my car or whatever I know that's a cliche but and the child with disinhibited social engagement disorder would likely go with them so it is important to explore and evaluate whether the child is just being impulsive Ooh, candy sounds really good or if they have a habit of doing this and going up to strangers and engaging in disinhibited behavior behaviors are socially disinhibited not simply impulsive and the dsm 5tr does not really define the difference however uh, as i mentioned impulsive would be the kid sees something hears something is tempted by something and is like "Ooh, i want to have that now i mean we all know what impulsivity is i want to go pet the doggy i want to uh, have some candy i want to go check out this slide whatever the case may be socially disinhibited is going up to adults uh, without provocation or even with minimal provocation and not being um intimidated not being scared not being wary at all it's just like hey you're another person what are we going to do the child has experienced insufficient care as evidenced by and this is the same as for reactive attachment disorder social neglect including not having basic needs met for safety love and stimulation limited opportunities to form secure attachments due to changes of primary caregivers or growing up in environments that severely limit opportunities to form selective attachments the care in criterion c is presumed to be responsible for the disturbed behavior in criterion a so the neglect is presumed to be responsible for the behavior we want to see the behavior following the neglect so uh, and if the child exhibits this behavior this disinhibited behavior and then the caregiver corrects that behavior 
and the child doesn't do it anymore, that's not disinhibited social engagement. That's just a kid pushing boundaries or being curious and not understanding sometimes. So we definitely want to see the uh, neglect first, then the behavior as a reaction. Now, interestingly, in disinhibited social engagement disorder, and I looked over the criteria multiple times, the child has to have a developmental age of at least nine months, uh, but no age requirement for the first presentation. Remember, in reactive attachment disorder, the symptoms need to begin before the age of five. With dis disinhibited social engagement disorder, not so much. Uh, they do have to have a developmental age of at least nine months. So let's think about what that means. Think about a nine-month-old. Nine-month-olds nine are not talking yet. Nine-month-olds may crawl, um, but a lot of times a nine-month-old is not going to just randomly crawl over to strangers. Now, if there was another a toy next to them or another child next to them, they might. Uh, but observe children. If you don't typically work with children, uh, especially really young children, observe them in their natural habitat, if you will. Sometimes there are play areas at malls, for example, and you can observe children interacting with one another. Additional features. Reactive attachment disorder often co-occurs with developmental delays, especially delays in cognition and language. I think this is interesting. Why might this be? Are the developmental delays causing the reactive attachment disorder or does the neglect that precipitates the behavior also contribute to delays in cognition and language? We know that stress, um, prenatal stress as well as postpartum stress uh, for the infant, um, you know, stress in infancy and toddlerhood, contribute to potentially HPA axis dis dysregulation, can um, cause ch brain changes as a result of that stress, which may impair uh, cognitive abilities and potentially language in some. We also have to remember that language doesn't develop in isolation. And children who are in neglectful environments may not have the cognitive and social stimulation to develop language, to learn words. Now, they may be parked in front of a TV, so they're hearing lots of words, but this isn't always the case. Interestingly, now one of the reasons they put out this new DSM-5-TR was to highlight um, suicide differences or uh, whether the particular disorder was associated with higher levels of suicidality. It wasn't even mentioned. This, this diagnostic uh, set was not even addressed. Um, sex and gender related issues were also not even addressed. Now, I don't know whether that's because we don't know, because there's no research. I didn't find a lot of research on it. And that's another thing that I find very puzzling because there, over the past 20 years, there's been such a flurry of attention to attachment that one would think that we would have a better picture 
of the prevalence of reactive attachment disorder and disinhibited social engagement disorder but we don't it's also important to recognize that reactive attachment disorder and disinhibited social engagement disorder they have to um, reactive attachment has to begin before age five but it doesn't have an end point so you can have somebody who is an adolescent or an adult who still ha- is symptomatic for one of these attachment disorders differential diagnosis now the dsm in reactive attachment disorder did specifically say you have to rule out autism spectrum disorders children with autism spectrum disorder or reactive attachment disorder can have reduced expression of positive emotions cognitive and language delays and impairments in social reciprocity so remember back when we were talking about that I said there's a lot of overlap in the symptoms what you don't see is the neglect what you don't see is the inhospitable environments uh, in children with autism spectrum disorders without reactive attachment disorder so you need to rule out ASD now it didn't indicate whether you could have comorbid diagnoses if there was a um neglectful environment if the child did meet all the criteria for reactive attachment disorder could they also have a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder because ASD symptoms also begin before the age of five in in most children so I'm not sure about that but it is important to effectively diagnose because the treatment for autism spectrum disorders is far different than the treatment for reactive attachment disorder depression was really the only other thing that the dsm-5 tr mentioned for differential diagnosis and when we think of depression children who are depressed may withdraw and may have anhedonia or the inability to express or feel positive emotions they may have delays in uh, language development because they've been withdrawn because they've been depressed again this may happen but we didn't have the neglectful environment we didn't have the changing of caregivers now three more that I thought were really important and there are others like anxiety I didn't even mention here uh, social anxiety for example Um, now social anxiety it's not on the slides but I'll mention it anyway if the child has social anxiety disorder or an anxiety disorder they may have a uh, resistance to engaging with other people in, in some situations however a lot of times most of the time in these situations again the neglect didn't occur and they are able to be comforted by their caregiver when we see separation anxiety when we see children with high levels of social anxiety starting school most of the time their caregiver is the home base that they refer return to so that is not indicative of reactive attachment disorder back to the slide three more that I think are important to differentially diagnose that were not specifically mentioned in the TR 
schizoid personality disorder, detachment from social relationships and restricted range of emotional expression. Now remember, personality disorders can't be diagnosed until later in life. However, remember I said people can have reactive attachment disorder, uh, yeah, reactive attachment disorder, and not get treatment and still have be symptomatic for it later in life. They can still be symptomatic for it in late adolescence. So it is possible that somebody may present with as having schizoid personality disorder with detachment from social relationships and a restricted range of emotional expression, difficulty being uh, uh, not wanting to be comforted. So we do want to look at these and then we want to evaluate, was there a neglectful environment? Might they have met the criteria for reactive attachment disorder. The treatment will likely be somewhat different, but if they have if they have untreated reactive attachment disorder versus schizoid personality disorder. Another personality disorder is avoidant. People who have avoidant personality disorder exhibit social inhibition, feelings of inadequacy and hypersensitivity to criticism. Now we don't see those in reactive attachment disorder. They tend, uh, those are not criteria that are brought up when we talk about reactive attachment disorder. Now they may co-occur, but it's important to recognize that personality disorders are characterized by behaviors that are pervasive throughout multiple areas of a person's life and have persisted since at least middle to uh, middle childhood and or early adolescence. So we want to look at that and we want to say, hey, why might this be? Could reactive attachment disorder, something that happens in childhood and impacts the way an infant, a toddler, a you know elementary school kid perceives the world, is that going to impact the way they interact with anyone and anything henceforth? Yeah, it most certainly is. So it is important before we start slapping diagnoses of personality disorders on people that we rule out reactive attachment disorder. We rule out trauma. And finally, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Now in the DSM-5 TR, this is still back in the conditions for further study and it's called something like prenatal neurodevelopmental disorder or something. But if you look in the in PubMed, if you look in the World Health Organization literature or if you just Google fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about brain damage that occurs to a fetus as the result of a pregnant person consuming alcohol. Okay. So that's a whole different presentation in and of itself. But what I want to highlight for you, and we don't talk about FASDs nearly enough. What I want to highlight for you is that people with FASDs, now it's a spectrum, just like autism spectrum disorders, it's on a spectrum from mild to severe. They may exhibit hypersensitivity to touch just like somebody who has reactive attachment disorder may not want to be touched or somebody with autism spectrum disorder 
may be hypersensitive to touch. People with FASDs also may have this. Uh, people with FASDs may exhibit depression and withdrawal. And that can come off as not wanting to engage with others. Remember the DSM-5-TR did say we needed to differentially diagnose it from depression. Now FASDs can also masquerade, if you will, or be misdiagnosed as disinhibited social engagement disorder. People with FASDs, especially you know, further along on the spectrum, may have a lack of a fear of strangers and they may be easily convinced to leave places. They are gullible. They can be um, manipulated into doing pretty much anything by a bad actor. People with FASDs cannot anticipate consequences and they don't learn from consequences, especially when it gets further along the spectrum. So when they experience something once, okay, that really sucks. They can be in the exact same situation three months later and do it again because they don't connect the dots. They don't remember, oh, if when this happened before and I did this, bad things happened. So here we are again, don't want to don't want to make that same mistake. That doesn't happen for a lot of people with FASDs. And it is important to recognize that. That's one of the reasons when you look at in the criminal justice system, a lot of times there is a exceptionally high number of people with FASDs involved in criminal justice because they don't learn from their mistakes. But when you look at their criminal record, they typically are committing the same kind of offenses. They're not escalating. They just continue to keep committing the same time type of offenses and keep getting caught. Um, the takeaway from that is the treatment is going to be very different if the person has an FASD versus disinhibited social engagement disorder or reactive attachment disorder because cognitively they have they they have differences from people uh, who don't have FASDs and they may also have some neuroatypical qualities that also need to be addressed. Treatment targets. And I spent several hours pouring through PubMed looking for information about current best practices for working with people with uh, reactive attachment disorder or disinhibited social engagement disorder. And I came up with very little. There are, there are a mishmash of approaches. Family therapy and parent-child interaction therapy tend to rise to the highest level Interestingly, they didn't really highlight trauma-informed cognitive behavioral therapy or any trauma-informed therapy in the uh, treatment strategies for these two disorders. So I thought that was interesting. But what I did glean from the symptoms that are present with somebody with one of these disorders or, and or from the research uh, were a variety of treatment targets. So somebody with attachment issues, you know, we're just going to broaden it. 
even if they don't rise to meet the full criteria of reactive attachment disorder or disinhibited social engagement people who have difficulty forming emotional attachments could be because past attachments resulted in pain or abandonment areas that we could or strategies we could use to help them would be to help them figure out how to create safety and security if you're working with a seven-year-old that's going to be very different and that's probably going to involve a lot of family therapy than if you're working with a 27 year old or even a 17 year old but it's going to be important it's, they are going to likely have difficulty forming emotional attachments trusting other people until they feel safe and secure they're not going to want to tear down those walls they're not going to want to be vulnerable so that's really important addressing trauma is going to be huge if a child grew up in a neglectful environment which is a main criteria for both of these disorders they experience trauma and it will be important for them to process that trauma whether depending on the age whether it be through trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy EMDR or some other method uh, play therapy art therapy whatever approach is most appropriate for that child's to meet that child's needs trauma strips people's sense of safety and personal empowerment so they're not going to feel completely safe until they've addressed that trauma until they have addressed all of the ways that that trauma has imprinted on them cognitively emotionally and physically it's going to be important to help them develop interpersonal skills the person with reactive attachment has difficulty connecting with others and interacting um, socially and emotionally the person with disinhibited social engagement has very loose boundaries if they have any boundaries at all so they may overshare they may be too familiar so it's going to be important to help the individual develop culturally appropriate age appropriate interpersonal skills and encourage assertive communication helping the person learn how to have those boundaries identify these are my boundaries these are your boundaries and and what how to assert what they need what they want as a seven-year-old or as a 17-year-old everybody has the right to be able to identify their needs to ask to get their needs met to try to get their needs met and we want to help the child learn how to do that in ways that are assertive they're not destructive they're not self-destructive children with attachment disorders are often seen as quote unpredictable comes from the DSM recognize behavior as communication if Tommy acted one way in this situation on Tuesday and in the same situation he reacted differently on Thursday what was different Linehan um, encourages people to do backward chaining work backwards and figure out what was different it may not be that situation itself maybe the situation's exactly the same but it could be the vulnerabilities maybe on Tuesday Tommy was well rested and 
well fed and everything else and on Thursday he didn't sleep well and he hadn't eaten but a couple of bites of his breakfast so he was hungry and tired and cranky and more emotionally reactive I believe in large part if we get curious we are able to understand some of the behaviors and if we are mindful in our approach the behavior seems a lot less unpredictable we are able to say oh you know Tommy woke up three times last night it's gonna be a rough day today you know it's predictable we may not exact exactly know how it's gonna come out but it may be more predictable and we can learn for each individual child how do I mitigate this vulnerability you can't prevent vulnerabilities all the time but okay how do I make the best out of this bad situation explore triggers and vulnerabilities now remember vulnerabilities are things that make people more likely to respond with intense distress at situations than they ordinarily would being overtired being hungry being sick being in pain being overwhelmed overstimulated in a strange situation those are all vulnerabilities okay uh, triggers are potential things in the environment that may set the person off it may remind them of a traumatic experience in the past and it triggers that memory which triggers the fear response so triggers make that uh, distressful response happen and we may want to be curious about you know, what exactly was the trigger in this situation when people experience trauma their brain naturally becomes more aware and encodes more of the stimuli involved in that situation in order to help them better predict and prepare for that situation in the future so there can be some things that seem relatively benign to you in a particular situation that might actually trigger that child it could be a particular sound the smell of somebody's deodorant or perfume or you know, who knows but it's curious and a lot of times when especially with older children when they are able to get into their wise mind they may be able to think back to what was it that triggered my response younger children may not be able to and that's where the caregiver is going to be up to them to explore the situation like a scientist and say hmm, what was different here why did what happened in this situation at this time that triggered this stress reaction this fear reaction and we need to remember that the reaction is one of fear it's one to protect themselves whether they um, are trying to find somebody to validate them and keep them safe or they are trying to avoid people that they're afraid are going to hurt them difficult to console most children who've experienced neglect are going to have a dysregulated HPA axis they are going to go from what I call flat to furious they're going to be kind of apathetic blasé not expressing a lot of positive emotion but when they do get upset they go from zero to 250 like that uh, 
and that is that HPA axis responding with a tsunami of stress hormones therefore HPA axis recovery is going to be important helping the child calm down their stress response system and that can come through breathing exercises vagus nerve response uh, massage um, good nutrition regulating circadian rhythms there's a lot of ways to help reset and rebalance the systems in the body that are responsible for regulating that threat response system distress tolerance and de-escalation skills are also helpful and even as young as four or five children can start to learn distress tolerance skills they can learn that okay this really is uncomfortable I don't like this feeling right now but it's not going to consume me they can learn that they can sit with it and it's not going to overpower them and they can also learn uh, strategies to de-escalate to trigger the relaxation response so they can get into their wise mind and figure out okay what do I do next difficult to discipline we want to recognize how discipline may be related to past trauma many children that were in neglectful environments may have been um, party to or victims of spontaneous rages by their caregiver and they may not understand they may have done something 17 times and nobody said anything and the 18th time they got violently punished for it we don't know but we do want to recognize what discipline means to that child what does it mean when even your discipline nonverbals I know my mom she used to have discipline nonverbals and I knew when I saw that look that I was in big doo-doo and we want to recognize that children who grew up in neglectful or abusive environments are hyper vigilant to those nonverbals so they may already be in fight or flight mode by the time you even start to open your mouth because they saw it in your body language as soon as you walked in and they are already trying to protect themselves we want to recognize dichotomous thinking in young children and dichotomous schema in older children dichotomous is all or none I'm all good I'm all bad I'm loved I'm not loved I'm safe I'm unsafe there's no middle ground and children that are exposed to neglect are going to develop that all-or-nothing schema that I'm unsafe people can never be trusted um, I can never be happy all of those polar types of thinking and those schema until they are evaluated will kind of go on unchecked those are ingrained and help the person predict the future um, and predict what's going to happen and interact with the environment henceforth until they stop and go hmm is this thought process is this schema still accurate most of us don't do that we, we were never taught to regularly check our thought processes so that can be helpful in treatment to evaluate the, the dichotomy of their thinking and encourage caregivers to discipline the behavior not the child start out with compassion start out with care start out with uh, positive things about the child 
you know, I, I can see that you're having a really tough day today and then talk about the behavior, not you're a bad child or you're a bad boy, but it was in, it was a bad choice, but also making sure ahead of time to reinforce the notion that you are loved and you are safe in this environment. People who've been exposed to trauma become hypervigilant. Help them figure out how to create safety and help them develop grounding activities so they are regularly checking in, they're regularly mindful and checking the situation and able to say, in this situation at this time, am I safe? When they get up in the morning, in this situation at this time, am I safe? When they sit down in the classroom, when they get to school, in this situation at this time, am I safe? That can help them uh, start reprogramming their, their threat response system and noticing when they are safe instead of only noticing all of the potential threats. People who've been exposed to trauma or neglect have a strong desire to control their environment and make their own decisions. Well, other people couldn't be counted on, so yeah, it makes sense. It's important to try to provide children and people with a voice and choice whenever possible. And for children who have really a big difficulty with changes in routine, you were going to grandma's house, but now you've got to go do something else that can feel overwhelming for them and it's important to warn them about changes in routine and finally we do want to target if we're dealing with a juvenile parental frustration burnout and dysregulation by the time the child comes to therapy the caregivers may already be frustrated and burned out or if you're working with a child and their adoptive parents the adoptive parents may not be at the point of burnout yet, but we need to help them prevent that. We need to help them understand what's going on and develop the tools and the support that they need in order to cope with this situation until the child can develop a sense of safety and security and all these other tools that they will need in order to um, have a happier healthier life behavioral management training or parent-child interaction training has been shown to be the most effective treatment uh, for disinhibited social engagement disorder and parent-child interaction training in this particular instance focuses on improving the quality of interactions between the child and the caregivers and enhancing communication of expectations and consequences. The prevalence of reactive attachment disorder or disinhibited social engagement disorder, according to the DSM-5-TR, is less than 10% even in neglected children. However, there's a significant positive association between attachment-related issues, even if it doesn't rise to the level of meeting one of these two attachment disorders, there's a significant positive association between attachment-related issues and non-suicidal self-injury, borderline personality disorder, depression, addiction, and anxiety. 
Treatment for attachment issues usually requires family and or couples therapy in addition to individual treatment for the identified patient.